Research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. Seated by my side is Eric Eggers, uh, the co-host of this program. So, Eric, I have to ask you a very basic, fundamental, but philosophical question. Okay. And I ask this question knowing what your work desk looks like. Mm. But given all the events in Washington, D.C., the chaos that's there, where do you stand on the issue of messiness? Messiness. Don't they say like messiness is close to godliness? Is that not the quote? I think it's cleanliness. Is- well, tomato, tomato. Okay, we, we heard it a little <laughs> bit differently. Uh, no, you, you've you correctly noted that my office, I'd like to cultivate sort of an intentionally creative atmosphere <laughs> right? where it's sort of a choose your own adventure type of thing where yep. things might be located. No, I, I think it's fair to say I'm not hyper organized and maybe not the neatest person. So I'm generally pro mess. Yes. Yeah. And you've got four kids. Anybody yep. who's had kids knows that that adds to an element of chaos and messiness. Well, the reason we're talking about messiness, of course, is not just because it's in our lives, but it's been in Washington, D.C. for quite some time. Uh, and we recently had this amazing drama with Kevin McCarthy, who eventually becomes Speaker of the House on the 15th ballot and it's been a long time since we've had that many votes yeah how come we're not tell how come we're not casting this as a hero story you know <laughs> the little speaker that could little kevin he set out to be the speaker and at first he's like no speaker for kevin and he says god darn it i'm just gonna try harder i'm just gonna keep fighting harder and i'm gonna overcome and he did you know rocky won against the russians in 15 rounds <laughs> right. just speaker mccarthy wins against some of the russian props of congress in 15 rounds like, come on this is an all American tale. Yeah, well, that's that's one way you could put it. Yeah, that's not the way generally people uh, in the media establishment have looked at it, or the way that certain political leaders have looked at it. It in is fact, not how they've looked. At yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> Here, for example, is what Joe Biden said uh, about his seeking the speakership and all of these votes. Are you concerned about the implications of there not being uh, of there not being a functioning House of Representatives at this point? Well, obviously I am, uh, in terms of, uh, put my hat on it, um, for two reasons. One, it's embarrassing for the country. I mean, literally, and I, I'm not making a part of this, the reality is that, you know, to be able to have a Congress that can't function is just embarrassing. We're the greatest nation in the world. How can that be? And we've had a lot of trouble with, I'm sorry for the noise. A lot of trouble with the attacks on our institutions already, and uh, it just that, that that's what worries me more than anything else. Here's what's amazing to me about that comment. First of all, how long-winded it was, but the question that he's asked is about: Are you concerned about a functioning 
House of Representatives, and he talks about the fact that we are lacking a functioning House of Representatives, as if this thing has been this fine oiled machine that has represented people and functioned so smoothly and has been a pinnacle of democracy to begin with. No, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of questions over the last week from p- friends of yours and just people that know that you pay attention to this stuff. Say, hey, what should we make of this? Uh, I've gotten a lot of questions. And, and the reality is this, that we exist, that the Government Accountability Institute that you are the president of, that employs me, exists essentially because of how broken Congress is. I mean, that's right. like you wrote a book about insider trading in members of Congress. That's what launched our organization. The follow-up book that we did called Extortion is basically about how members of Congress leverage their positions of power mm-hmm. to raise money, uh, extort money. That's where the title came from, from regular people, from private interests to prop up their own lifestyles and perpetuate their own political careers. So let's not act as if when you see this disruption, <laughs> it's like, oh man, dang. Right. Right. It's like this great skyscraper is toppling down. Right. No, it's actually, it's it reminds me very much of like whenever you get sick, you know, your white blood cells come to fight the infection. That's yeah. all I could think of when I would see the fact that like, no, it's good. It's healthy. We Congress is infected. Yes. And you heard members of the House Freedom Caucus, specifically Chip Roy, who I think is a guy that's emerged on more of a national stage now because of all the interviews he did. Apparently he was uh, Ted Cruz's on, in, on Ted Cruz's staff and now he's a member of the House. And he, I think by all accounts, maybe unlike somebody like a Matt Gates, who, you know, he likes to be on TV. Guys like Chip Roy, I think, generally are held in high regard as having very pure motives. They're like, no, they, they want to stop things like the $1.7 trillion spending package that passed in a lame deck congressional session that handicaps members of the House majority for the next nine months. Like, there are people with actual principles that say, no, 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 we're trying to fundamentally change Congress. And that's what we saw happen. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we're going to talk about that today. We want to first talk about uh, the status quo in Congress. Uh, and, and, you know, dispel this myth that somehow it was this smooth functioning <laughs> machine. Well, it was smooth. <laughs> it was smooth and collecting a lot of dollars, but this is a Congress that has not passed a budget in, I don't know how long mm-hmm. they do these omnibus bills, these continuing resolutions. Uh, the, the committees don't even really deal with legislation anymore. There used to be something called a markup. Where a committee, oh, lo and behold, a committee, the education committee that's supposed to steer education policy would actually mark up the bill and then the full house would vote on that doesn't happen anymore. So we want to talk about first about the dysfunction and then second of all, talk about some of the positive things that have come out of the chaos that we just saw in Washington, D.C. And this is so important, I think, for people to understand when the establishment media and political figures say things are running smoothly in Washington. Bad news. You have to ask themselves, what do you mean? Smooth in what sense? And is serving whose purposes? So all the chaos in Washington last week, I actually think we came out of this pretty well. So let's talk a little bit about this well-oiled machine in Washington, D.C., known as the Congress. A lot of it has to do with the concentrated power. This is what these these dissenters were mad about, is the Speaker of the House, this began with Paul Ryan, Nancy Pelosi, and now, of course, Kevin McCarthy wanted this concentrated power in the Speaker of the House that basically was running so much of the show in a way 
that has not been the way historically. And why was the power so concentrated, right? I mean, a lot of people might not even know, why was Kevin McCarthy in line to be speaker? What what empowers you? Do you have to be like a great orator? Do you have to have, <laughs> like, have you gone like an Ivy League management? It's, or it's legislative skill? knowledge, isn't it? Isn't <laughs> it legislative knowledge? <laughs> is it a great voluminous history of, you know, is it, is, do you like pass a patriotism test? Is that what happens? Yeah. No, it's not. You raise lots and lots and lots of money. That's right. Like that's why Nancy Pelosi was generally regarded as ruling with an iron fist because she was unparalleled, unprecedented in her fundraising prowess. Kevin McCarthy, very much in the Pelosi model, said, "Okay, I'm going to be speaker, so I'm going to go out." And to his credit, he did raise a lot of money and he spent a lot of money to help put together this House Majority Coalition. Right? I mean, he right. they, they spent money, they donated money to these campaigns and helped essentially flip the house, not near as much as they thought they might have, but it's, it's the, his fundraising helped contribute politically to the fact there are now more Republicans and Democrats in the house. And so that's why generally speaking, he's the guy, okay, he gets to be speaker. That's right. The reason Nancy Pelosi was speaker, the reason she rose in the ranks beginning in the late eighties to the present is her incredible ability to raise money. Now, if you're going to raise that kind of money, if you're Nancy Pelosi and you're going to go out and raise all this money or, or, uh, you know, McCarthy, uh, and you become speaker, you need to deliver on promises, right? People have given you these checks. They've sent you this money. You need to deliver. You need to deliver and people want things. Yeah, people want things, and the only way you can deliver as Speaker of the House is by having levels of control. Um, and this is, I, I think, kind of an interesting testament to where we are in Washington, D.C. today. Nancy Pelosi recently stepped down as Speaker, and she was lauded um, as a role model. In fact, I'm looking at an article here from the Bro Brookings Institution. The GOP should see Nancy Pelosi as a role model, not as a villain. Uh, and what they talk about is that she has been the most powerful leader to ever hold the gavel uh, and um, that she therefore should be a leader to emulate. Now, this is interesting to me. I don't know when it was that people in Washington, D.C., particularly the political left, thought powerful leaders were a good thing. Right. I mean, I, I always thought they were in favor of dissent. They were in favor of debate. But one of the things that Nancy Pelosi did when she became speaker last time is she got rid of a rule motion to vacate the chair rule, which is a rule that's been around for a long time. Right. Uh yeah, right. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's well, the rule's been around for a long time. It was really written by Thomas Jefferson. So that long. Yeah, yeah like that Jeff long. Jeffersonian old. <laughs> right. Uh, it was part of the House rules, and, and that was adopted formally in 1837. Uh, and essentially what this procedure says is if you have five members of the majority party that 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 put in the speaker that want to force a vote on that person's tenure as leader, they can do it at any time. And this is seen as a check on the ability of a speaker. Um, you know, if, if, you, if people don't like what they're doing, they can actually have, oh my gosh, an open debate in Congress about it. Well, in 2018, Nancy Pelosi, for the first time, had this rule eliminated. So there's nobody that can call for the elimination of the removal of the speaker. The, you know, the only way it happens is if you have an absolute majority of your people, not five, it now takes an absolute majority, which you know means you've got to have hundreds of people. So it's a way of getting rid of dissent. You wonder if she did that because you started to see the emergence of like the squad and you started to yeah. see these, these new liberal factions that were kind of uh, outwardly contesting or questioning some of the things that Nancy Pelosi did. And I think that's the, the key thing to remember here, right? Is that the more concentrated power becomes 
in Washington, D.C. and concentrated in the leadership of these political parties, it then necessarily comes at contrast, right, or comes from individual members. And so I think that's that to me is the frame and it's a charitable frame, but I think it is, I think, not incorrect that you want to interpret the fight that just happened with members of the House Freedom Caucus and Kevin McCarthy. They're essentially fighting to have more power as an individual member of Congress. That's which, right. Which some would say, well, they're just trying to you know, prop up their own power and their own ego. But I think in a Jeffersonian sense, right, really what they're fighting for is, no, 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 like I got elected. I'm trying to get restore and return power closer to the people. Right. Because as power had been concentrated with under Paul Ryan and then under Nancy Pelosi, what that essentially means is that the people that donate the money to, because Nancy Pelosi is very good at raising money, Kevin McCarthy is very good at raising money, the people that give that money, those are the ones with the power. That's right. And so these members of the House Freedom Caucus are trying to return power to the individuals. And as more and more power is concentrated in leadership, then more and more power is taken away from members of Congress. And listen to this quote. I mean, you found this article from Slate. It said, majority and minority leaders right now enjoy exorbitant control over rulemaking and the legislative and appropriative process. Non-leadership members of both parties, meanwhile, have become historically disempowered. Warm bodies expected to show up and vote the party line. Bills rarely come through committee and as a result see little input from all but the most senior members. This concentration at the top was something outgoing Speaker Pelosi, who has often been referred to as the most powerful House Speaker in modern history, used to her full advantage. So like yeah. that's status quo. Yeah. And that's the business model that you just saw attempted to be taken down yes. by the dissenters. Yeah. And, and, and here's the thing. If you are a part of the Washington, D.C. establishment, meaning you're a senior elected official like Nancy Pelosi, and let's remember, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, what part of the American public actually voted for her? Those in her congressional district, the same portion of people roughly that voted for Chip Roy or voted for a freshman elected. The, the difference is, of course, that Nancy Pelosi has been picked by her colleagues. But in terms of representing, quote unquote, the American people, she got as many votes as these backbenchers in Congress. And yet she is speaker set this tradition really established or moved forward in this tradition of having a very, very powerful speaker. And what's interesting about that quote is it, it you know, the way you, you remember the, the, the schoolhouse rock, how a bill becomes a bill, you know, it goes, it's introduced into a committee and a committee looks at it and then it goes to the house floor and there's a debate and then there's a vote that has been upended. Yeah. What's the, the modern version of that George Soros sends an email. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the modern the modern uh, function of that is that the bill gets introduced as part of an omnibus bill right. that's forty five hundred words long that nobody actually gets to even see. So think about that. Pelosi is saying, first of all, legislation doesn't go through committee. Second of all, you don't actually get to read the bill. And this is what a lot of the dissents. Uh, among those that were challenging McCarthy was about. So one of the reforms is they wanted to get rid of um, this notion that you could force a vote or you could have a discussion about the leadership with just five members of the caucus. The second thing is, oh my gosh, lo and behold, the old 72-hour rule, I, this is shocking, that members should actually have 72 hours to read a bill before they vote on it. Right. 
That's the second thing that they were pushing for. And so to me, the irony is all the people that were talking about the craziness of these people challenging McCarthy, um, you know, that these are nut jobs. The slate piece that you just read from is titled the right wing nuts upending the house are right about one thing. And oh, by the way, guess who agrees with those right wing nuts? None other than Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Two podcasts in a row for AOC (laughs) getting a reference and a positive thing. Her quote is, I'm not going to lie. Some of the points that are made, I mean, a lot of them are bad. Most of them are bad. (laughs) But some of them, there is actually some common ground on, like, for example, democratizing the rules of the House and kind of breaking up that concentration of power that is so focused in a handful of leaders on both parties. And so even just like, I'm pretty sure they made it down to just one member of Congress in the majority party can now call for the removal of Speaker, which is actually something that Representative Meadows used against John Boehner. He ultimately didn't remove him, but John Boehner resigned, I think partly because he recognized there's some dissent. But think about that. I mean, just from a philosophical standpoint, any member of Congress, right? Any any of our representatives, our representative here in North Florida, somebody else's representative in North Carolina could call for the removal of the speaker. And that sort of empowers citizens literally all over the country to have that kind of a check on the concentration of power in Washington, D.C. That's how it's supposed to work. Right, right. And here's the thing. The argument that people uh, in the McCarthy camp or in the Pelosi camp or in the establishment media, the argument they would make is, well, we've got to have this as orderly. We've got to have this organized. We can't have this chaos because the wheels of government have to turn. How have those wheels been turning lately? I mean, seriously, what, what I don't get is when, when, when they talk about we need a well-functioning, we need to return to a well-functioning government. We need to have a government. For what purpose? They don't pass budgets. They don't debate bills. The amount of time that they're actually spending. I mean, this was a, a, a stunning this is a great stat. statistic to me. Somebody went back and looked at this when, is how well Congress is running, by the yeah, way. Yeah, well, how well Congress is running under these previous rules. And the question was, is what's the average number of hours per day when Congress is in session? Uh, How long is that session? Well, in 1996, when they were in session, it was 8.4 hours a day. That's like a regular work day. A regular work day. In 2018, under Pelosi, under these rules, 4.1. In other words, they're spending less than half the time per day in average in session than they were before. So this well-functioning machine, this efficient machine that is organized and structured, it's not producing actual budgets. They're putting these monstrous bills together that you're expected to vote on quickly, you know, 4,000 page bill. They're not debated by committees and they're not even meeting in Congress to deliberate. So what are they doing? They're raising money. That's what they're spending their time doing. And oh, by the way, listen, these other two stats, these are as of 2019, more than half of members in Congress as of 2019 for the first time were millionaires. Data from the most recent personal financial disclosure show, right? The median net worth of members of Congress was over a million dollars as of 2019. The typical congressional representative with both Senate and House members has an estimated net worth of over half a million dollars or five times the median U.S. household net worth. So think of it this way. Members of Congress are now spending less time than ever actually working. They're wealthier than ever. Yeah. And oh, by the way, our federal deficit is also at the highest it's ever been. Right. So you've got people working less, making more. Voting on bills they don't understand. And spending more. And spending more. And reading less. I mean, and that's 
status quo. That's what's happening yeah. in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And we need to return to that, right? Because we can't, we can't have this <laughs> but, chaos. But yeah, upending that is what's embarrassing for House Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's... <laughs> That's could you, a, any member of like that's what the media that's what the media just said for the last week, right? Oh, it's so embarrassing. Could you imagine if you had a a a, a sibling? who had like a major spending problem. They had a gambling problem and they had, yeah, all I, I will terrible- try really hard to imagine. And, and, <laughs> and you, and you go to them and say, we need to start changing the way you're doing things, right? Yeah. We need to start changing. And they said, this chaos is ridiculous. Everything's that's the equivalent of what's going on. Here. I mean, that's why I was sort of initially sympathetic. I heard an interview that Chip Roy did. I heard two interviews that I thought were, were really meaningful. Chip Roy gave one and Byron Donalds representative from Florida, who was nominated for speaker of the house, part of the house freedom caucus as well, gave one as well. But Chip Roy said, look, Kevin McCarthy, and then, you know, why Kevin McCarthy, what's this personal animus towards him? And Chip Roy's point is like, look, Kevin McCarthy has been in leadership since 2009. When he took over in leadership in 2009, the federal deficit was $11 trillion. It's now over $30 trillion. Mm. So he is part of entrenched Washington, D.C. And right. as you know, anybody that's really good at raising money is yep. beholden to special interests. That's right. And the special interests are the ones that have driven the train to the, where we are now. Yeah. And so I think I'm generally sympathetic. I'm not saying I believe in the purity of the motives of every member of the House Freedom Caucus. But if what you're saying is that Washington is fundamentally broken, as an organization, we agree with you. Like right. That's why we exist. Right. right. And so I think... It's, I don't think it's wrong to set pause and be like, okay, cool. Yeah. So we're going to give 72 hours to actually do some analysis of bills. If Chip Roy thinks that by having enough people on the, not just the House Rules Committee, but there's a special select member of the House Rules that then get to decide how and when bills are read, how budgets right. are passed. And he thinks that if you have enough people in the right spots that that 1.7 trillion spending bill would have been stopped. That's interesting to me. Now we'll see if he, you know, like if, if he's able to kind of live up to that standard. But and he said, look, man, you, nobody's trying to elevate their own personal profile here. If you're on the House Rules Committee, you have to get show up early. You have to be here on Sunday nights. I mean, that's it's hard work. And then Byron Donald's point was, and this gets back to like how concentrated the powers become. Man, we're here. We're away from our families, but we're not doing anything. We just march back and forth these ceremonial votes. That's not why any of us got elected to Congress. Yeah. And, and to the point, uh, again, uh, there are certain things I'm excited about the new Republican Congress might be doing in terms of investigations and fiscal responsibilities. But in terms of symbolism, what's the first thing Kevin McCarthy's holding a vote on? To defund the 87,000 IRS agents. Now, let's be clear. Do I want those agents to go away? Sure. I think that would be good. I don't like an intrusive IRS. Here's the problem. And Kevin McCarthy knows this. That bill's going nowhere. The Senate's not going to vote on it. Even if the Senate, by some miracle, passed it, Biden's going to veto it. He knows it's a symbolic fake vote that doesn't mean anything. So I was going to ask about that because, like, I think eight, there's eight other bills I think the House Freedom Caucus negotiations, and it's the same thing, right? Stuff that House can pass, but the Senate's never going to touch. So, what do you think that's just a waste of time? I think a lot of it's a waste of time. What they're going to be able to do is go back and tell their constituents, we passed legislation to get rid of the, but it doesn't amount to anything. It's not going to change your life. And this is what I think frustrates a lot of people. Look, symbolism is important. You need to do those things. But if your argument is we can't have this internal debate about house rules, about accountability for leadership uh, that was being pushed in the house, because we've got to rush forward on these votes that are so important. Come on, you're being ridiculous and silly. And so, you know, to get back to our point in this case, I think messiness is a very 
good thing. And some real positive things have resulted from this. And my hope is that it's not just something that's going to affect McCarthy's leadership. You're going to see backbenchers on the Democrat side. If the Democrats were to retake the House at some point, they're going to be emboldened and say to Pelosi or whoever, wait a second, time out. We're not going to let you run roughshod like Nancy Pelosi did last time or like Paul Ryan tried to do that time before. Just think about this podcast versus the last podcast we did. Not that everybody listens to everything we do or they listen sequentially, Wait, but the last they don't that, well, I mean, you know, my family does, <laughs> but I just grew up in a warm and supporting household that way. I don't, I don't know about you, <laughs> you broken, cold man. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, last week we talked about the, the spending bill, right. And how the spending bill came and it, how historically unprecedented it was. There'd never been a lame deck session, a lame deck session that passed that kind of money that essentially the government's going to keep running for the next nine months at handcuffs the house Republicans from being able to exert their true authority and power. But th- we said like, well, where, who wrote that bill? Right. I mean, so, and people are like, well, we, you know, the, all these Republican senators, we didn't even know what's in it. Right. So like somebody wrote it. Yes. And people that weren't elected wrote it, right? Staff yeah. members. Like so on so last week you had literally people that we don't know their names and we didn't vote for them. Right. And they're spending 1.7 trillion tax dollars on all kinds of crazy stuff. Right. This week you have members of the house actually fighting to return and restore power to the members of individual elected offices that they're more closely tethered to the American people. So I actually think it's a positive sign. I think it's a very positive sign. I think we should be encouraged. And and look, I hope that there's going to be more of this. Anybody who argues that the problem with our leadership in Washington, D.C. is that, you know, there are too many entanglements in terms of things they have to do. We just need greater efficiency. We need more speed in decision making. No, no. Time out. That, that's exactly the problem that we have is so much is being done without our knowledge and without our ability. So your closing thoughts, I know you're pro messiness. Uh, do you expect that we're going to see more of this uh, from this Congress? And do you think that's a good thing? I do think it's a good thing, right? Because I know sort of joking around about the little speaker that could, but I do think, and Kevin McCarthy's even said, look, we've learned how to govern. I think this is his first time in that job. I think he's had to learn now how to negotiate and deal and like, hey, if we're going to be able to get this stuff done, then yeah, these people are going to want to have a voice and have, and so I, I, I respect the fact that you have to bring everybody together. And that means ideally there should be very few things everybody agrees on, but hopefully those few things are the most important things. We don't need Congress out there passing a bunch of laws. Yeah, we don't need them passing laws and we also don't need the political theater that they engage right. in so often. Well, we appreciate you listening as always to The Drill Down. You can find our podcasts at thedrilldown.com or other places where fine podcasts can be listened to. Uh, you can find Eric's book, uh, Fraud, about voter fraud at Amazon.com. Written in 2018, it predicted a lot of the issues that we are facing today. And you can find my books there as well. The, the roads are basically paved with your book at this point. It's so <laughs> ubiquitous. <laughs> you can't, oh, there's another red-handed. It's yeah, just yeah. literally flying off the shelves and hitting you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all for listening. Until next time.